herein lies the biggest problem. We are our own worst enemies. And I don't mean the sense of like we crash cars too much, we do this too much, is that we are not there for each other enough because we are so self-interested in a profession that has so little to offer that anytime somebody drops some crumbs, they fight like fucking rats over it. And uh, yeah. that is inherently, any cop will tell you the biggest problems are not outside the walls. Hey guys, if you missed out on the last conference in Nashville, Tennessee, you don't want to miss out on the next one. It's April 28th through May 3rd, Orlando, Florida, the Gaylord Palms Resort and Convention Center. You made a mistake missing the last one. You don't want that to happen again on this one. Five days of some of the best training you're ever going to experience packed into one event. We have an early bird special right now, $50 off. Use 24 early bird on our website, streetcop.com. Look for the conference, click the link, register today. If you want to get significantly better at this profession in five days, don't dare miss out on the 2024 Street Cop Conference. So tell us like the story of Dave Bonanno. Yeah, sure. So I I had PTSD. I, I think I'm like recovered now. My wife was like, Do you have it or not? I'm like, no, I think I think honestly I don't really have it anymore, which is rare because once people get PTSD, they you know, they don't they go to therapy forever, doesn't do anything, they take tons of meds, they don't work, and then you're kind of stuck with it. But I um so yeah, I had a crazy mother. My dad died when I was a kid, and then I was depressed for tw- like 20 years. And then I became a psychologist to figure out what the hell is wrong with me. And I didn't really get the answers. And so I was trying to think of like what kind of niche do I want to have? And I was thinking like maybe work with anxious people, but actually they drive me nuts. And um <laughs> and then <laughs> They 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 keep at they call when's my appointment again you know like ah jeez so anyway um yeah my, I was like well, who do I want to work with and my wife was like well you love potheads so then I was like oh yeah and it turned out that in Connecticut seven years ago you ha- you could qualify for medical marijuana with PTSD diagnosis otherwise you had to have like cancer or AIDS or something you know really serious medically wrong with you and so I ended up becoming the first guy in America to help people to get medical marijuana by diagnosing them or evaluating and diagnosing them with PTSD. And then I actually ended up doing it in 22 different other states. So I um, have talked to over 10,000 people with PTSD and I just learned so much that I wouldn't have normally learned from books or, or from school, including the fact that I had PTSD, which is kind of crazy that I didn't know that. I mean, it, it was 10 years after I got my doctorate that I realized that I had PTSD. And every doctor I had ever seen, you know, they just said, well, you didn't go to war, so it's got to be anxiety. And even the therapist didn't pick up on that. And my first thought, of course, was like, well, geez, I'm not trying to compare myself to war heroes or, you know, take anything away from them or anybody else. But yeah, that's kind of where I'm coming from. I, I ended up writing a book and um, and I think it's the clearest explanation out there of what PTSD actually is. Because, you know, Dennis, if you look up PTSD, you see the same definition on every website and it's not a definition. It's just a list of symptoms. Okay, a few questions. One is, what's the name of the book so people don't forget it if they're looking to get a PTSD book? Right. So it's called Your Brain is a RoboCat. And what that means is part of your brain is a robot. It's totally logical. 
And we try to identify with that. But, and we like to think of ourselves as logical people. But when you're triggered or threatened or stressed out or in a crisis situation, your logical brain is actually designed to go offline. And then your emotional fight or flight brain takes over, which I call the cat brain, um, partly because you can't get cats to do what you want. Like, you know, like they, it just has a mind of its own. And then um, that's why you have this often tug of war between your head and your heart or, you know, the two sides of your brain or whatever. So I just really try to lay it out there for regular people to know how they work. Because for me, even as a psychologist, I, I couldn't explain why I was doing crazy stuff or like why I would get triggered sometimes. And then I ended up just blaming myself and ultimately kind of hating myself. So yeah, I'm trying to save people from having to do that to be able to finally explain to themselves and to their loved ones what's actually happening there. So yeah, your brain you is a robocat. Sorry. No, that's okay. How did you discover your PTSD? And if you wouldn't mind talking about it, what is your PTSD? Sure, absolutely not. I don't mind talking about it at all. So I was interviewing a guy who was sitting on my couch. And, I mean, he had come for uh, to qualify for medical cannabis. And he started telling me his symptoms. And then just something really clicked. I mean, I was like, I interrupted. I was like, holy shit, I have PTSD. And he's like, what? I'm like, oh, my God. I got PTSD. That's exactly what's going on. I started like grabbing my hair. I'm like, I got fucking PTSD. He's like, you're the doctor. Are you okay? You're, you're the doctor. You're supposed to be okay. <laughs> and I'm like, I, I, it just really kind of clicked. It's so weird that it hadn't, but you know, it was just one of those eye-opening things. It was like this epiphany. So yeah, for me, like it started with an insecure attachment to my mom. And back then, I mean, I'm 52. I think you're, you're younger than me. Right. But, 10 but years, sort of close. 10 years younger. Oh, good for you. And so, well, back then, you know, they would they wouldn't sleep with the kid. Like you, you would. It's called ferberizing. Like some doctor ferber said, you should have a kid sleep in their own room and then just cr let them cry forever. And it, I think it was really bad uh, for me. And then my mom had her own issues, so she wasn't really able to be that great of a mom. So I grew up like not having that ability to soothe myself. And I think that's that really kind of lays the foundation for PTSD. And then, yeah, my dad, my mom had a stroke when I was 14, so she became handicapped for life. And then my dad got cancer right after that. And so... Um, back then, everybody just was saying, like, you know, you're a man now, so you got to take care of your mom and your brother. And then that really messed me up. And I didn't I just didn't realize how bad it, it was. But I, I, ended, I ended up going to a depression for like 20 years, like I said, and had anxiety and uh, ADD. And uh, and then um, I, I discovered this type of therapy, which I like to talk about now or later. But that is really what I, I think kind of rescued me from my PTSD, but that's, that's what it is. I mean, like, you know, it's not like I went to war or anything or like, uh, you know, I, I, it, it's complex PTSD, but it is PTSD. I, I was pretty screwed up there for a long time. I think that we get into a place in our lives where we begin to compare our problems against other people's problems and start to downplay or degrade the level of significance of our problems. And as I'm listening to you, you continuously do that. I do it as well. And I heard something very, very, very profound for me. And I try to pass it along to a lot of people. I went to a meditation seminar with Emily Fletcher, who wrote a book called Dress Less, Accomplish More. And she's been on the podcast and 
She's one of those people when you meet them, it's like meeting an angel, but she curses too. So you're right. like, all right, this is one cool ass chick. And yeah. also like she is an angel on earth and just brings this energy. Like you can feel like you almost want to like fall into her arms. And she's got like that angelic motherly, like you're the holy mother feel. She's fucking fan. But at the same time, she's like, she'll drop an F-bomb like a, like, like a psycho. And she's very funny and very theatrical and very comical. So I brought my videographer Jay with me to learn to go to medit 40 meditation practice. So she said, you know, one thing for me where I was a big unlock was I was constantly doing this thing where I was saying, well, mine wasn't as bad as theirs. Well, mine wasn't like my father was doing that to me. And what her therapist said to her was, you keep comparing yourself to other people's trauma and you think it's, your trauma doesn't deserve to be acknowledged but it's very real and it's your trauma and you should acknowledge it and just recognize that it's, yes, you weren't maybe raped by your dad. Maybe you weren't beaten with a switch every single day of your life. Maybe you weren't abandoned and homeless at 15, but the things that happened to you, like when your father screamed at you every single time you struck out at a baseball game, it sounds simple, but it's fucked up and that's trauma and that molds how you've become as an adult. So while we're, there is no grand scale of trauma, obviously, but in some sense, our human brain goes right to like, but there is, right? You know what I mean? Yeah, totally. And and that, yeah, that's a really good point. I I do think it's a relative too for a lot of people. Like, I I saw I heard about this study. I have no idea how they would have done this study, but I guess like a year after winning the lottery, you're pretty much as happy as you were beforehand and then they also said like uh, a year after becoming paralyzed you're also just about as happy like you, wow. you just yeah I, I don't i have no idea how they would have done that study but um yeah like it, it's so relative isn't it like you think about like people who really seemingly haven't made and they're still stressed out about you know seemingly little things but if everybody, you know, you never really get to the happiness land. I, I even catch myself thinking like, oh man, someday I'm going to have it made. Everything's going to be great, but no, I'm still going to have to, you know, do shit I don't want to do. <laughs> That's well, like, there's a good lesson there. And what I heard in what you were saying about the paralyzed guy and the other example that you used is I think when something traumatic happens in our lives, we think that we're never going to survive it. That's a, Initially, where everybody defaults to, somebody's got terminal disease. It's the end of your marriage. You lost a child. Uh, you know, these are some of the most horrific things that you could imagine happening to a human being. And I'll tell you where my mind went in a second as well. But I think what that proves is that everybody has to have enough emotional intelligence to know at that moment, at that time, that you're going to be okay. We are very resilient creatures. And I think about the TED talk with the Holocaust survivor. Have you seen that one? No. So the guy's a Holocaust survivor. I don't think people can really begin to even understand and comprehend what the Holocaust was. Right. I think it's a word, but I don't think people can really imagine what it must have been like to experience the Holocaust. Yeah. He, sur he survived. You just don't, you can't even begin to understand what that must do to the brain. And his TED talk is all about learning how to smile again. And I think he gave the TED talk when he was like 99 years old or something like that. It's, it, it's a, it'll make you cry. And yeah, he said, wow. so, if, and, and I think in the end he wrapped it up with like, so if I can find a way to smile, you can find a way to smile. And I think <laughs> it's worth smiling. Life's yeah. hard. Man. 
<laughs> yeah, I, th- I think we're we're incredibly fragile and incredibly resilient, both at the same time. Yeah. yeah. What was some of the crazy stuff that you alluded to earlier that your PTSD was creating for you? Um, and, and I ask that because sometimes I do things and I wonder about my behavior. And I try to link it back to the new practice of my life. Why did I do that? Where does that come from? And what causes that? I had a profound moment like last week and I was giving somebody else advice just like you were. And I'm like, oh, fuck, that's me, right? Like I'm <laughs> like, fuck, that's me too. So I'm super imperfect, but I'm also very thankful that I was blessed with the genetics that I was blessed with. And I mean that in the sense of like the way I look, I'm just talking about my emotional intelligence, albeit still, um, you know, able to be penetrated. I have been down so many roads in my life of hard situations that it has created a high level of emotional intelligence for me. Yeah. You know, it's crazy, dude. Like I've actually learned how to understand and not be as upset at funerals because wakes are upsetting, but funerals are really upsetting. Right. For me, that's just how I see it. So Uh how I see it now versus how I saw it before took a little work and I'll share this with people. And you know, what's crazy dude is that I share my method with those who are going through a loss. And I have had many people say to me, you know, I didn't even know you that well. And those five minutes you gave me your time just made such a difference in my healing. And so I said, this is the story that I tell. Yeah. Like, wow, somebody recently. So somebody asked me recently, like, you know, are you religious? I said, I don't practice a religion per se. I am quote unquote Catholic because you and I are both Italian. That's how we were brought up in the world. Right. From the Northeast. But I don't, as a matter of fact, I probably was turned off from Catholicism because of my forced, being forced to go to church and Sundays, it was miserable. Um, yes. <laughs> however, I have a very, very deep relationship with God. Now, I don't define uh-huh. God in any way. And so somebody said, well, what does that mean to you? I go, it means that everything I do, I do with intention. And my intention is, what have you done for somebody else today? That's how I live my life. What have you done for somebody else? Sometimes doing something for somebody else means doing something for myself first, then doing something for somebody else. So this person said, well, where do you think we go when we die? And I go, I don't think anybody has that answer, but there are proofs. And I'm going to tell you what the proofs are. Number one, you could go on YouTube and watch Life After Death Experiences. If that's not convincing enough, my suggestion is find a medium, maybe one or two or three. Awesome. And Dave, I'm going to tell you this right now. I haven't been to one, but both my cousins have. Uh-huh. And my you are not supposed to record it. My cousin who works here after her father passed away recorded it. She came back here like shaking and she's like, wait to hear this. And there is no way on earth that that woman could have ever known the things that she said on that recording. Impossible. Nobody knew that because some of the stuff was from our childhood and it was dead on accurate to such finite details. And I'll give you a couple of them. She sits down. She goes, my way by Frank Sinatra. What's that? 
And so my cousin goes, that's what we played at my grandfather's wake. She goes, that's what's playing right now. Holy and crap. Right. Then she goes, what's with the Entenmann's donut, like the Entenmann's cakes and donuts on the table? My grandparents, I could tell you where they were every time we went over. Sometimes they suck because they have like the raspberry donut ones. They sucked. I like the regular <laughs> Always had a box of Entenmann's yeah. on a shelf right by the kitchen table. I knew exactly where it was. We all went to it. Sometimes it was like lemon rank pie or some bullshit, right? <laughs> and so- She's like, what is with the Entenmann? She didn't say what's with the cakes. She goes, what is with the Entenmann's? That's right? amazing. And, and, and dude, right? it, it goes on and on and on. And like, she didn't miss once. So when you say to me, how do you know there's life after death? Explain that one to me. And right. a friend of mine who lost both his father and his brother, who's one of my best pals, who don't see him a lot. When he first lost his father and his brother in the same year, six months apart, he was very angry. He did not believe about life after death. And recently, maybe a year or two years ago, I was relieved to hear him say, dude, there's no way it's not something like it's like the shit that's been going on is fucking crazy. There's no way. And he's a smart, one of the smartest guys I know. He's like, you just can't explain this stuff. It's fucking wild. So I don't know what it is. I don't know if it's energy or what something happens and this ain't the end. So when I'm yeah. at a funeral, this all comes back to this, this full circle to this thing. When I'm at a funeral and I'll go right to my grandmother's funeral. Cause that's probably the most devastating for me personally, although my uncle's death, my cousin's father was very, very bad. My grandmother was more of a mother to me because, again, I had a fucked up mother, too. Uh -huh. <laughs> I still do. <laughs> and <laughs> it was like the loss of a mother for me. I didn't have a mother anymore. That's what it signified. Essentially, it was the, my grandmother's death was basically the loss of my mother. But I remember thinking to myself, OK, here, this is over. I will have to wait a long time to ever see my grandmother again. But, but I have, have all this proof, all this research here. And, and I know this isn't the end. This is, what's next? What's the next form of life? Nobody knows. And so when somebody loses somebody, just know that I know it's not the end. And I tell this story to somebody who is in grief. And they've said to yeah. me, multiple people, you know, I never thought this, I thought this was the end. They go, it can't, it can't be the end. It's impossible. So knowing that it's not the end and there might be a judgment day, I try to live my life in the way that I can explain myself to God. Yeah. Man. Because one reoccurring theme that you hear in these YouTube videos of like life after death is like, what did you do for your fellow man before you came here? What did you do for some, for other people? And people get sent back to do that work. One guy's story is he now goes, he quit his job, like retired and travels to visit terminally ill people to tell them about heaven wow. who was there. And that's the work he's doing on behalf of the Lord. And like, you know, they're like, they're like the doctor's like, the guy was dead for five minutes. We like turning the machines off. All of a sudden we start getting a beat back, you know, never seen anything like it in my life. And, and so we have a lot of guys and girls on here who have been close to death as police officers. They'll tell the same stories. Yeah. Wow. I used to, I used to worry about sounding like a quack if I were to bring up uh, the idea of life after death or mediums or signs from people and stuff like that. But nowadays, it seems like people are really starting to accept that. And I'd say maybe nine times out of 10 people are open to that. And I, I forgot to mention my son passed away. He was, he was my stepson, but he was um, I raised him most of his life and he was 19 and he had a heart condition we didn't know about. And my wife and I found him, you know, in, in his bed and everything. Mm -hmm. And and we've been seeing mediums um, 
you know, once in a while. And it has been so health, helpful for us. And he comes through loud and clear every time. And, and he says, yeah. like, you know, yeah, it's it's so it's so awesome. And, you know, for people out there who wonder, like, is it going to be like overwhelmingly sad? It just it just isn't just doesn't end up being that way. Like when I first went, I wanted to see if I could hear from my dad. He came through loud and clear and he was like, I'm sorry, you know, we weren't close when we, when we, when I was down there. And he said, don't worry about me. I'm fishing. Like, he, you know, how would she know that? Like, and uh, he's wearing this red flannel shirt, his favorite shirt. I'm like, wow, this is crazy. And then afterwards, yeah, I wasn't sad really. It was just like, yeah, yeah right. I just talked to my dad. He's doing good. Like it was awesome. So yeah, I... that's cool that, that you can throw that out there, Dennis. This may sound a little batshit crazy, but anybody who's a naysayer of this, I invite you to join my podcast and explain to me how this medium's report comes back the way that it does. Now, my other cousin, the reason this cousin went is because my cousin before her, well, not before her, our younger cousin went originally and then said, you got to go to this. This is the stuff that your father was coming through, apparently wants to talk to you. So come, come see this medium. Now, this may sound nutty but <laughs> i i guess because i'm so open to it i've been told i often get visited not too often from people and sometimes the weirdest people come through who have passed away generally 90 percent of the time i'm told to deliver a message one morning i wake up okay i'll tell you where i was we had bunk beds in my kids rooms i was sleeping on the top bunk because he was like crying on the bottom so i was on the top bunk he was on the bottom and i woke up and started writing notes down on my phone on color notes and so I called my aunt, says my uncle, and I called my aunt and I had five points to make. And I said, this is going to sound crazy. My cousin Melissa is like a sister to me. So she works here. People ever call the company, said, Melissa, that's my cousin. We're the same age. And I said, let's get on the phone. Let's just do this real quick. And I went through this list of things. And I said, first of all, let me explain to you where I was. We call him Uncle Wally. His name's Uncle Mike, but we call him Uncle Wally because their last name. I said, well, Uncle Wally. And this is where I was sitting. And I described the place. And my aunt goes, do you know? He used to tell me that when he died, that's exactly what it was going to look like. He Holy was going to be there. Hell. And I said, I was, I was sitting with him there. We played basketball. We talked. And he had messages for me to give you. Wow. So, so then I said, I gave these messages. And she said, did you know that before? Did I ever tell you that before? I go, I've never heard of this in my life. She goes, how would you know that? I go, I don't know. I woke up and I fucking wrote this stuff down. I didn't want to forget it. And I called you immediately. <laughs> and so what I ended up doing was for my cousin's 40th birthday, I got with a artist and went through on several occasions what it looked like where her father was and where we uh, sat. And I, oh, had wow, awesome. draw, I, I had him paint it on a canvas painting. So now it hangs in her house of where her father is in heaven. Great idea. Oh, that's super cool. That's awesome. And I said to her, nobody's ever going to top this gift because not only was it super expensive, it was the most thoughtful thing I've ever done in my life. <laughs> yeah. yeah, man, that's great. <laughs> so, you know, there are many occasions where I am, and I say this not to sound like a quack. I say this to give people comfort knowing that I can comfortably tell you that this just isn't the end. But what I also want to say is don't take for granted what this is here because right. yeah. this is beautiful and I hate the fact that it's going so fast. Yeah. That's one of the, that's what I'm telling myself is like, yes, you know, it's not going to last forever and you got to 
got to really make sure that you make the best of it as well you can. The best book I've ever read, and I haven't finished it yet. I'm at the end. It's a little, I'm not reconciling with the parents. So the, the last part of the book is about reconciliation and trying to understand how to deal with your fucked up parents. Um, but the book is called Adult Children of Emotionally Immature Parents. Have you heard yeah, of it? Right, uh, um, yeah, that sounds familiar. This book is so good, not because you needed to have fucked up parents, but it ensures that you won't be a fucked up parent. So if you are a parent, my suggestion is, is to read the book or listen to the book. I listened to it. So you can understand how your behavior is perceived and how it molds your children's future. Talks about this book on several occasions. And so I think you have a different perspective as a parent when you read that book and start to see things through the eyes of your children. That's important Absolutely. because I'm starting to see the fruits of my labor of love that I put into these kids. I'll give you one. And I'm getting a little upset, so I'm going to try not to like get too upset. My father is not well. And, uh, you know, he's in, a, he's in a care facility at the moment. I don't know how long uh -huh. he's going to be there for. And so we went to see him two days ago before we went to the beach. So I said to my kids, do you want to go see Papa before we go? He's about 15 minutes from my house, not even 10 minutes from my house. And they go, yeah, yeah, we want to go see him. I go, do you want to eat? It was already late. It's like 1, 1.30. And I'm like, or we can go see Papa and we'll, then we'll go down the shore. I was so proud when I didn't have to tell my kids, hug Papa. My second one went, I want to hug him. And he's in a hospital bed and like I had to cover him up and like he's got the cat that are in, like it's a mess, right? Like it's like, it's probably very hard for their children, like my kids to understand what's going on because he's sick and he's dying. He's dying in a hospital bed. Like he's, he's looking, he doesn't look like he used to a year ago. He's frail. And yeah. so he's Alzheimer's, right? So as a young guy to have Alzheimer's, he's, he's at the end of his Alzheimer's and he's 73. Oh, so yeah. I thought he was a very healthy guy. So, Jeez, yeah. so um, it was a wonderful moment for me to watch these kids be so thoughtful and compassionate that they knew their grandfather needed to feel their love and gave it to wow. them. So it was a real big moment for me. I didn't have to say a word. I was so proud, not only of them, but of the work that we put in as parents, their mother and I. So, yeah, beautiful. You know, man, there's, there's more to this podcast than I think what people think when they see the name of it. So people ask me, hey, what's the Street Cop podcast about? It's not just about running and gunning and crime and, and laws. I think I've been entrusted with giving everybody some guidance on every area of their life. I think that's why, as a company, we are who we are and where we are is because we're not just teaching tactics. We're uh -huh. teaching life and perspective. Yeah. And you're, you're doing, you're talking about emotions and, and truths that, you know, men aren't necessarily socialized to, to be dealing with. I mean, and, and I, your population police officers, you know, I would think have to compartmentalize a whole lot and not necessarily are, are that well at, first in talking about emotions and stuff like that but you do it so naturally that it just it, it seems cool and i think you're probably a really good model for a lot of people i think that's what i'm supposed to do you know it is not is that great when you find what you're supposed to do i don't know what i'm supposed to do but i think this is some of it i think it's important i'm trying to learn how to be better all the time not just as a business person but as a human being so then i can come in here 
and tell you what I've learned. Absolutely. And, and, you know, like, so yeah, when you do those practices, I think that's when you can really get in touch with the inner wisdom in, inside of you and in, in your heart. And that's what really brings me to this podcast is I, I never really had any type of affiliation with police or, or fire or first responders. But as I was doing my work, I, I kind of realized that first responders have a condition that I want to call being adrenalized. So, you know, you could make the argument that you guys all have PTSD because you see horrible stuff and because nobody can sleep that well, nobody can relax that well, it's hard to, sh to shut down your thoughts and, and half the people want to get drunk. And then the rates of suicide and addiction divorce are like horrible. And, and I, when I ask first responders and I ask them like, well, why why is it like that? And they don't have an answer. They don't know. They don't want to say it's PTSD and I don't blame them. But if we could say that you're adrenalized and that you just have adrenaline all the time and it never really goes away, then you can really start to deal with it and talk about it. But I mean, the I, of course, I'm swinging it back to, you know, my agenda. But but this I was led to this by my intuition. It just kind of happened. And I never thought I would be, you know, trying to necessarily work with first responders but um does that make sense to you it does and i'll tell you a few things and i just had a little bit of a moment here i don't think it's something new for me or profound but i had a thought that i thought would be worth to share to help give you some incentive as to why we compartmentalize or why it affects some people and why it doesn't affect most or why people don't talk about it i don't necessarily think that what we bear witness to for most of us is overall consistently traumatic. I think there are very there are things that are traumatic that we get to witness. I don't think it's every day. I don't think it's all day. I think I think you just get you know emotionless to a lot of stuff. Mm -hmm. And I think that we probably learn how to again compartmentalize, but shut it off and shut it on. So I think the big mm -hmm. trade off is is taking an emotion, removing your emotions when you get somewhere, but also keeping some of them around so you can have enough to give love and care when it's needed as a police officer. But then mm -hmm. the trick is to sh turn it back on when you resume back to life. And that's the hard thing. What kills us the most is the toxicity that we're surrounded in, in our professional work. Right. You do not have people talking about openness and fairness and thoughtfulness and being thankful for the work being thankful for the job, being thankful for the opportunity, because there are a lot of things that are inherently unfair where cops are constantly judged. And the worst thing is they're judged by their peers and their coworkers the most. And so herein lies the biggest problem. We are our own worst enemies. And I don't mean the sense of like we crash cars too much, we do this too much, is that we are not there for each other enough because we are so self-interested in a profession that has so little to offer that anytime somebody drops some crumbs, they fight like fucking rats over it. And oh, yeah. that is inherently, any cop will tell you the biggest problems are not outside the walls. They're inside the walls of a police department. And so if people would like to see things get better, they don't have to join in the toxicity of the social environment that is profound in every police department everywhere. What they can do is decide to think differently 
and see it differently. And you might be by yourself on that, but you want to be a lot better mentally by that. As a matter of fact, I made that shift towards the end of my career and I got very frustrated listening to people complain because yeah. I felt like, well, there's probably some PTSD there, but I felt like you could either complain or do something about it. Mm -hmm. That's how I see things. So complaining is not going to solve it. There must be a resolution. Maybe the resolution is things that you can't control. Maybe the resolution is something inside of you. So how do you let the toxic water roll off your feathers like you're a duck, right? How do you, how do you get there? So if you're going to start doing work with first responders, I think it's a lot about what you can control, mm -hmm. not what you want to control. And I tell people this, if you continue to chase these awards, these promotions, these specialized units, these positions, those are the big wins for cops, getting a dog, getting to a specialized unit, getting a take-home car, uh, getting to wear a different uniform, getting a promotion, getting an award. When you can start to remove that, now you should have ambition. You should direct some energy towards that. But you can't hang your hat on that because the game isn't played fairly. There are too much nepotism, politics, uh, not enough meritocracy. And sometimes there is meritocracy and you're just not good enough to get to these places, which is fine. Mm -hmm. But what you can do every day is when you get home, look at yourself in the mirror and say, did I do the best job I could possibly do today? And repeat that. I worked with what I had. Even if you got a job, you got stuck inside. You know, you got stuck. Nobody wants to be stuck inside as a cop. It's the last thing we want. Most people don't want to be stuck inside. The old guys want to get stuck inside. Sometimes you get the shit end of the stick. Sometimes you go to work. It's 83. It's perfect outside. It's beautiful. You just want to be outside. And you get stuck on a seven-hour job inside. It's a nightmare. But that comes with the territory. So how can you see that? That's okay. Today, these people needed me. You know, I know this is the seventh time she's here in the past six months. She doesn't want to listen, but this is what I signed up for. I always tell people, it's so funny, you guys, nine months on the road, and you're complaining about what shift you're getting put on. But need I remind you, if you were sitting in your interview for a job you wanted so dearly, and the chief said to you, you'll be on midnight for the first five years, will you still take the job? You would have said gladly. Yeah. But now that you're out here and you listen to these other fucks around you, you think you're entitled to everything. You think you're entitled to everything, and you're just not yet. And I don't think that you get to control what it is. I think you, you get to control how you react to what it is and how you behave. I'm not saying some of this stuff isn't justified. I'm saying if you can't fix it, why are you trying to fight it? Go with the tide. You know what I mean? You ever swim against the tide? It's You're, you're trying to swim swim downstream with an upstream flow. Like, do you know how hard that is? And if you don't like it, get out of the fucking stream. Go find a new stream. I saw Albert Ellis speak. He's one of the founders of psychology in America. He was 95 uh, at the time. This was 20 years ago, and he died right after. And he was just taking random questions from people. And this woman raised her hand and she said, you know, I have all this paperwork I got to do. And I get so mad and I just sit there and stare at it. And I think about how I should be home with my son. And the reason I'm bringing this up is because it's it's totally about what can you do and what can you not do and how how are can you really best get into the best mindset? So he said, well, first of all, can you change the system? Can you change the fact that, you know, you have all this paperwork or whatever? And 
the answer is no. So then he said something that blew my mind. He was like, you have to be sad and not mad because if you're angry, then you're living in an alternate reality. You're, you're living in, well, it should be this way or should it be this way? Or, and what you're really doing, and he said, is just shooting all over yourself. And, and people would much rather be angry than sad because if you're sad, you have to admit that you are powerless and, and nobody wants to feel sad. But the thing is, you can move on if you're sad because you're accepting reality. Whereas if you're angry, you're really in an alternate reality. You're not accepting what is. And if you're sad, yes, you can, you can, you know, it, it, it sucks that I had to be inside for seven hours or it sucks that I had to see this horrible stuff today, but at least I can do this. And that's what gives you the energy, right? I mean, correct me if I'm wrong. Hey guys, follow us on all social media platforms to include Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, Facebook group. We have so much information going on every single day and we don't want you to miss out on any of that stuff. So check it out. Go give us a follow. To endure the pain. It's like leaving a police department and enduring the pain of not seeing your friends anymore. Not maybe knowing the area that you work in, not knowing the equipment and the software and knowing the schedule and knowing this guy at this job or seeing that girl ever again and going into the unknown is painful. But I got to tell you, everybody who's taken the leap for the right reasons has no regret. And so I encourage people to follow that fear because that's where the best stuff is. It's in the pain. And I namely say this with relationships, relationships with your significant others, however you want to describe those, boyfriends, girlfriends, husbands, wives, and relationships like your job. People hate their job. Yeah. And I think it's the same reason why people stay in bad relationships. Because at the moment, at the fucking moment, it seems like it's the better solution because I don't want to endure the pain because the fear dictates my life. And I just told somebody recently, I can guarantee you that when I'm 97 and I'm laying in bed and my loved ones are surrounding me, when they ask me, do you have regrets? Did you let fear dictate your life? I am living a life where I get to say, a few words at the end, maybe one sentence. And it is, I have no regrets. Because I promise you 99% of people who it's too late for, they can't start over and do it differently. They have a ton of them. And I'm not dying with regret. I'm just not doing it. Decisions, poor decisions are not regrets to me, right? I've made poor decisions. I'm okay with that. I've made poor decisions. I'm okay with that. It's different than regret. I don't regret making a decision whether it was the right decision or the wrong decision, I think indecision is the major regret. I, I used to work in nursing homes and I would talk to people at the end of their lives and ask them if they, how they felt about their lives and if they did have regrets. And the number one regret that people would have is they were with the wrong person. They didn't leave. And I mean, of course, they often grew up where divorce just wasn't, you know, as socially acceptable. But yeah, that's what they really regretted. And they stayed because of fear or inertia or laziness or whatever. Well, yeah, socially I, acceptable. I think real quick, just because I don't want to rant. Yeah, it's, your, sure. it's your podcast, not mine. Uh, socially acceptable is interesting. So we're seeing a higher divorce rate. And I try to think about this. Like it's like up to 70% divorce rate in the United States of America. Really? And so, yeah, it's wild. It's like 70% divorce rates. Ugh. So, yeah, it's wild. So I think divorce 
shouldn't be called divorce rate. I think it should be called, I should have known better 20 fucking years ago rate. But because <laughs> I decided to not endure the pain, we now have a high divorce rate. If people just had the fucking balls to say, listen, Jen, look, just because you're a nice, cool chick and I'm a nice, cool dude, it doesn't mean we're in love. With the intention of us not having regret or going down the road of a divorce 20 years from now, I think it's better that we just go our different ways and go back into the pain of being in the dating pool. But I watch these people failing to employ this discipline in 37, 38, 39, now looking down the pipe of I'm never going to have children. It's mm -hmm. not going to happen. I cannot find somebody at this point in my life and start to have children this fast. And it's because of that lack of discipline early on, because these people stay in relationships three years, five years, five years, four years. How are you in three to five, three to four or five year relationships and they all failed? At what point did you recognize these weren't going to be long-term? And why didn't you stop it? Um, I, I do think it has to do with delayed gratification. People just you know, are getting worse and worse at that as the generations go on. And then not to blame everything on social media, but, you know, you see what you think is, you know, the reality that you, you're taking in all the time isn't really what it is. And back in the day, you know, when you and I were kids, like Hollywood was like just something out there and you didn't try to compare yourself to it. Now you're seeing like all these people, you know, everybody in America thinks they're a star, you know, and they're putting on their best face and they're living their best life and it's all on social media and you can't help but try to compare yourself and want to do that and then yeah you're going to take shortcuts that you shouldn't be taking and then try to get it i mean i think sometimes but yeah and not being true to yourself not having that inner to um intuition or the, the real strong inner vision like you're talking about people think because they see people who look like they're happily married and in love that that's the reality of their situation and you know what's crazy dave is that i can't tell you how many people i know that are so completely full of shit on social media people listening to this podcast are going that's me too no shit it's you you ain't fooling me homie homeboy or homegirl you ain't fooling this motherfucker your pictures mean nothing to me because out of nowhere we're all from left field just shocked that he was banging the babysitter, right? That she was yeah. banging the tennis instructor. <laughs> it's funny how the truth begins to surface. Yeah, and oftentimes when there's adultery, it's not like they make a plan to do it. It just happens. Like, what I'm saying is there's trouble in paradise, and then you just find yourself, I mean, you, you know, doing the wrong thing, and it's because you, you're not connected to your spouse. If you really are connected to your spouse, there's just no room for infidelity. And if right. you're not, then yeah, it's it's a it's a breeding ground if it's for bad behavior. Brother, like people don't understand that. And sometimes I think like, man, it's so offensive when we talk like this because people hate the truth. Fucking hate it, dude. I'm gonna circle back around to this. This is how we started. What was some of the crazy stuff you were doing from your PTSD? That was the original question. I was uh well, I had I was addicted to alcohol and marijuana and really kind of just trying to not be sober. I think if you have a PTSD, you just feel crappy all the time, really. And and uh, 
you're kind of looking for some way out. I also was dating crazy people. <laughs> and, and it was weird, man. I met the perfect woman when I was 40. But the whole time leading up to that, it wasn't like there was this uh, logical progression of like, oh, it's getting healthier and healthier. Like it was like the last person I dated before my wife was just so crazy. Like she faked an abortion to get money out of me and stuff like that. And then and then I met my wife and it was perfect. So like you never know when you're going to really hit it. But yeah, I, I um I, at least I didn't get married, like, or really uh, waste anybody's time or waste my own time for all that long. But it took me till 40. And uh, and then just being so reactive, I think, like having such strong emotions and uh, not being able to have that emotional intelligence like you, you talk about. I mean, I used to think like, oh, I'm Italian, so I'm going to be like up and down all over the place. But I think a lot of that was kind of a function of my PTSD and not being able to soothe myself or settle myself down. Another thing I think people deal with is that we're human beings. And I would argue that 99% of human beings are compassionate. And we are not the type of species that abandons one another. So naturally, we always try to help one another. We're always trying to be there for one another. And sometimes we see ourselves in that person knowing that we could have been helped at many times and we wouldn't want somebody to turn our backs on them. But there is one area of your life that you need to be able to employ the discipline of understanding that helping is not going to change. Well, you're helping somebody, it doesn't mean you're changing them. So what I see a lot of people doing is they're getting involved with people who are significantly damaged. Mm -hmm. and, and, yeah. and so what they do is people like you and I, who probably were those kids who needed somebody to see them and know that we were good people because we were misjudged, we impose how we felt on other people. And I tell people this, you have to make an assessment when you're in a dating relationship. You can't change somebody. So if you are not taking them as they are, don't think you're going to take them and remold them because you can't do that. And once you understand that and you recognize who you're dealing with, you'll be able to have more success. I recognize in a if I was dating that I can't make somebody that be something that they're not. Were you trying to do that? Yes. And then, you know, when I was in grad school, I was like all enamored with the idea of helping people to change. And, um, you know, I think burnout happens when you're, when you're trying to help somebody more than they're trying to help themselves. Uh, and then, you know, there's that joke, like how many psychologists does it take to change a light bulb? Only one, but the light bulb has to want to change. And I, I, I think like people just are ruled by their emotional brains more than we want to admit. And that's kind of one of the, the central theses of my book, which is that, you know, like we all like to think of ourselves as logical and you, uh, you seem like a very logical guy and you're very good at laying things out in a way that you know, illustrates contrast and helps people to see like, you know, what they really need to do and where they need to go. However, the emotional brain is just so powerful and people are just kind of end up doing what they're doing and they 
seem to seems like people are on their own timelines too. Like even myself, I mean, I'm 52. Yeah, that's another thing. How a reason how PTSD affected me? I just haven't been able to get out of my own way, and I have all this ideas that I'm I want to like start a career and be a public figure. But as I'm 52, it's taken me this long. I just had my own timeline. I, I don't know if I could have speeded it up and done it at your age or not, but. Um, there's only so much you can do for other people and recognizing what you can and can't do makes you the most effective, but at the same time, I mean, you're not as effective as you want to be. <laughs> I like the conversation of emotional intelligence because I think it's really a path to where the greatness is and, and yeah. the strength of most people. It's fucking crazy. Man, I had this uh, roommate one time and he was saying like, I, I don't, I'm not quite as smart as the other people in business school. That was my classmates. And and I'm I told because I'm really smart. I mean, not to brag, but I told him emotional intelligence. And that had just come out, that concept in like 1990 when he told me this, or it was 93, whatever. I was like, you have emotional intelligence. So this guy sold his company for $10 million a couple of years ago, and I'm just fucking like writing stuff and not going nowhere. <laughs> yeah, it's emotional intelligence is much more important than than uh, IQ. EQ is much more important. Dave, where can they find you and your book? And I want to invite you back on the podcast. I think we didn't get to even close where we wanted to go today. And it became a Dennis Benino rant and rave, which I fucking <laughs> apologize for, dude. Uh, you know? No, no it's, been, it's been fun. And uh, yeah, I'd love to come back. Um, so uh, yes, you can find me at www.drbonano.com uh, it's b-o-n-a-n-n-o there's two n's at the end because you say bonanno in italian like that and uh and then my book is uh you can find it on amazon just look up robocat book so your brain is a robocat finally understand your trauma response Dude, and then, yeah, yeah. okay yeah get Sorry. in touch with frank you get this scheduled up i know you got to go you have, a, you have an appointment Go do your thing. I'll see you, Dave. Yeah, right up. All right, cool. Thanks, Dave. Take, Take care. care. Hey, guys, check out our upcoming training at streetcop.com. Don't forget, we have 50 instructors nationally teaching a variety of topics. These are the best classes you're going to experience in your career. We make sure of it. You're going to love it. I guarantee you, you're going to be thankful that you went. Check us out at streetcop.com for all upcoming classes in your area.